Queen City Homicides is a true crime podcast that focuses on real stories based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Although true crime may be a form of entertainment for some, let it also be a tool for education and awareness. Let us never forget that these are real stories of real people. Listener's discretion is advised. The tally of people killed in Charlotte, all of which happened in just the past 24 hours. Chaotic scene in North Charlotte, East Charlotte. In West Charlotte, South Charlotte. Queen City made homicides. Take a listen. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Queen City Homicides. Ah. Inserts clapping noises. Ah, 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 ah. Y'all know the clapping noises are never going to be there, right? Okay. Anyways, welcome back, guys. I am so sorry that I took such a long break. I know it was like over a month ago. And it was never my intention to be gone that long. Trust me. And I'm going to tell y'all everything that happened. I'm going to try to keep it short so it's not a super long intro. But let me tell y'all. I went to Dominican Republic, um, I think like the second week of August. And I had the episodes planned and recorded and ready. And then if my brother ever listens to my podcast, my brother was supposed to drive me to the airport using my car. And when we were leaving... Um, he parked my car in a handicapped spot and it got towed literally 30 minutes before I was supposed to be at the airport. So I had to order an Uber, get to the airport, waited in two super long lines, and I made it to my flight literally maybe a minute before they closed the door. So, um, I was planning to upload the episodes when I got to the airport and then that happened and I didn't have any time to upload them when I got to the airport and then in Dominican Republic, there's really not a lot of internet connection out there, Wi-Fi, shit like that. Um, so I didn't have any time. And then I came back home and school started, work started. It was just a lot. It was a lot for me. So I just want to let y'all know that since I started grad school officially, now I'm in the fall semester. Woo woo. Shout out to all my social workers, all my college students, undergrad, grad, doc, doctorates. <laughs> students out there we making it happen you feel me so shout out to us but because of that I do want to change the episode frequency from once a week to a new episode every two weeks which means that the episodes will be bi-weekly now that way you guys will still get at least two episodes each month and I can still put my energy into each episode and deliver quality instead of quantity I really appreciate everyone's patience and I really hope that I can keep this up and keep y'all on this journey with me. So today's episode will be a two-part, a two-parter. So episode, episode 17 will be a continuation of episode 16, but we'll see how I'm feeling as I'm recording this because if it's a short, if the part one is short, then I might make it just one whole episode to give y'all a nice welcome back. So, um... The two stories are actually intertwined and I thought that it would be interesting to break them up and give you guys some background on the information so you guys could come up with your own thoughts or ideas. Now, this story does cover the death of two minors, really three minors, so listener's discretion is advised. Now, if you grew up in the early 80s or asked some of your family who was living in Charlotte during the, during the early 80s, they would probably tell you that Charlotte was quiet for the most part. It had its spare share of crime, of course, but the idea that children would go missing or even be murdered wasn't on anyone's mind. 
It was just something that didn't happen. Now, Neely Shane Smith was born on December 30th, 1975. So she was a December baby, and you know I love me some December babies. We the littest, period. Neely was raised in Charlotte. She was a beautiful little girl who had brown hair, and she loved to talk to people and play with kids in the neighborhood. She lived with her mom, stepdad, and two brothers at the Williamsburg Jamestown Apartments, which was off of Green Oaks Lane, which, if I'm correct, was on the east side of the city. But feel free to correct me. Neely, in 1981, was only five years old. She weighed about 43 pounds and was three and a half feet tall. February 18, 1981, started off as a normal day. The weather was in the 60s, so it was cold, and it was pouring rain all day. Sorry, y'all. So I moved into my closet. That way I can record and the quality sounds better. So <laughs> shout out to the construction people. Y'all make it happen, though. <laughs> so as I was saying, the weather was in the 60s that day, and it was cold, and it was pouring rain all day. So Neely knocked on the door of one of her best friend's home to see if she could come outside and play. Her best friend's mother opened the door and talked to Neely, whose nose was running. She noticed that Neely was wearing a blue shirt and no jacket. I'm sure that surprised her because of the weather that day. And at first, when I was doing my research, I thought the same thing. But then I thought to myself, as kids, do we ever really care about the clothes that we wore or what the weather was? I remember a moment in my life where my siblings and I played in the pouring rain wearing just a t-shirt and some pants. So after all, maybe it's not that surprising. Neely asked her friend's mom if her daughter could come outside and play. But her friend was sick and her mother told Neely that she could not come out to play. She did invite Neely inside, but Neely shook her head and instead went to find some other kids to play with. Now some reports state that she was playing with friends, some state that she was just playing by herself, but I found more reports that said that she was playing with friends, so I'm also going to stick with that. So Neely was playing with some friends when the other kids stated that they saw a gray-haired man pick Neely up and force her inside his van. The search for Neely began. Days turned to weeks, and those weeks turned into months. Parents were fearful, and children were not allowed to play outside without supervision. Two months would go by before anyone got any updates on Neely's case. And then, on April 11, 1981, farmers spotted what they believed to be human remains off of Union Road, which is a rural area near a lake. When retired straight trooper Brian Gregory arrived on the scene, what was initially thought to be a skull turned out to be a human head. The head was identified as Neely Shane Smith. Her case was immediately identified as a homicide. Dogs were then sent off to find additional evidence. What was found throughout the area was Neely's socks, underwear, shoes, and her shirt. To this day, police have not found Neely's body. In fact, only about 25% of her remains have been identified. The medical examiner determined that sexual assault was a factor in her death and believed that someone had suffocated her. But since her body, clothes, and remains were outside for nearly two months, a lot of potential evidence could have been lost or destroyed. As police began their investigation, they interviewed 30 people, and one person stood out as a person of interest. His name 
was Fred Coffey Jr. Police interviewed Fred, who said that on the day of Neely's disappearance, he saw her playing, but that was the last time he saw her. But since police had little evidence tying him to Neely, her case soon went cold. 23 years would then go by before a witness came forward in 2004 and shed new light on the case that could help bring justice to Neely and her family. And instead of making this a two-part episode, we're just going to keep going. I'm not going to leave you guys on a cliffhanger, right? (laughs) As I was saying, there was that witness that came forward in 2004 with new information. And well, that witness in 1981 was a child, probably around the same age as Neely. That witness was actually playing with Neely the day that she went missing, which was February 18, 1981. He stated that he remembered Fred Coffey and that he actually pulled up to the two children playing and told them that he was sent by both the children's parents to come and get them. The witness said that Neely got into the van, but that he said no to Fred's request. He then said that Fred tried to grab him, but he ran to his grandmother's apartment. Now you might be wondering why this witness decided to come forward 23 years later. Well... Neely was not the first child to go missing in Charlotte during the early 80s. In fact, just 19 months before her disappearance, another little girl went missing. Her name was Amanda Ray, who, at the time of her disappearance, was only 10 years old. Amanda was a beautiful girl, who was born on June 25, 1969. She had blonde hair, and from the pictures I found, she just seemed to be a very happy girl. There really isn't a lot of information on her, which could be because this happened in the late 70s, early 80s. But nonetheless, Amanda had her whole life ahead of her. To her family, she was their precious baby girl. Amanda lived in the Woodbury Hills apartments with her mother, Anne Aker. Now, Anne would go off to work and leave Amanda at home. A nearby neighbor, Shirley Burnett, would watch Amanda to make sure she was okay while Anne was at work. Now, just like any other kid, Amanda enjoyed playing and hanging out with the kids in the area. There was actually a nearby lake where a lot of people would often fish and take their kids. On July 17, 1979, Amanda was fishing with one of her friends, Jerry, at Briar Creek, which was that nearby lake. As the two were fishing and minding their business, Amanda approached the two small children and spoke to them for about 15 minutes. Jerry described the man as tall with grayish hair, and after the man spoke to the kids, he walked off in the direction headed towards the Jamestown apartments. Then, on the next day, which was July 18th, Amanda was swimming in the pool of her apartment complex, and another child by the name of Tanya had seen Amanda swimming in the pool, and as she was swimming, Tanya noticed that Amanda was chatting with a tall man who had gray hair. She heard Amanda tell the man that she would be calling her mother. Anne did state that Amanda called her that day and told her mother she was going fishing with a nice man who had gray hair. But Anne told Amanda not to go. Shirley had also told Amanda that she could not go fishing with the man. But Amanda returned to the pool wearing a pair of blue jean shorts and a shirt. Tanya stated that she saw Amanda leaving with the gray-haired man. But before Amanda left... She had asked one of her friends, Pamela, if she wanted to go fishing with her and the man. But Pamela could not go fishing that day. She saw a white van, the tall man, 
and then Amanda told her she would see Pamela later. Then, another child named Wendy said she saw Amanda and the man at the lake fishing, and that the two were still fishing as she left. Another kid named Raymond was out at that lake fishing with his brother and mom. Between 1.30pm to 2pm, he saw a light blue van arrive at the lake, and he saw a tall man with salt and pepper hair with a girl who was wearing shorts and a shirt. Raymond stated that the girl sat in a chair and fished. Meanwhile, the man did not. Once his family left the lake, they actually saw the man at an intersection. He noticed the man's car was a light blue Ford with horizontal blue stripes and had dark blue carpet on the inside. Finally, Floyd, who was Raymond's brother, also stated that he saw a tall gray-haired man with Amanda who was driving a van with a blue interior. Even Raymond and Floyd's mother, Mabel, said she saw the man driving a van at the lake on that day. So I know you might be wondering, why am I telling you all these different counts of people seeing Amanda? Well, these instances where people saw her would prove to be useful evidence. On July 19th, Amanda's body was found in a wooded area near the lake that she was fishing at. It should be noted that the evidence found on Amanda's body and clothing included dog hairs and carpet fibers. Police began interviewing witnesses who saw her that day and were able to make a composite sketch of the man everyone saw her with. The composite was then released to the newspapers and a woman named Janet Ash contacted the police and said she believed the man who was in the newspaper was Fred Coffey Jr. And now, that name might be ringing some bells to you all. Well, Janet knew Fred very well because she was best friends with Fred's wife at the time. Her name was Edith. She actually let him take her kids to the pool or even go fishing sometimes. But in May of 1979, her daughter had actually told Janet that Fred masturbated in front of her. Janet then called the police and confronted Fred and told him that he needed to speak to her pastor and get mental health counseling. Fred spoke with the pastor and even admitted to masturbating in front of the child, but he refused to go to any counseling. And as far as I could see, no police or legal action was taken for him doing that, which is crazy to think about. Although Fred was a suspect, they didn't have enough physical evidence to tie him to the crime. So eventually, Amanda's case went cold. But when an 8-year-old boy by the name of Travis Shane King went missing in Virginia, new attention was brought to Fred, who, in 1986, was living in Bristol, Virginia. The boy was last seen with Fred, and when his body was found near a lake, police were sure that it was Fred who committed the crime. Travis had been strangled and left near a body of water. Just like Amanda and neatly. Now, so y'all know, Fred was brought to Caldwell County where he admitted to a therapist that he had molested over a hundred children in his life. In Caldwell County, Fred was facing multiple charges for crimes that occurred that dated as far back as 1974. Although he was never charged for the murder of Travis Shane King, detectives began looking at the Amanda Ray and Neely Shane Smith case just to see if they could draw possible connections to Fred that they may have missed the first time. Fred and his wife lived in the Jamestown Apartments, which was the same complex that Neely lived in, and was only a few steps away from Amanda's apartment complex at the time. Now, if you remember, 
Amanda was found with both dog hairs and carpet fibers on her body and clothes. Dr. Lewis Porter examined the evidence and compared the hairs to dog hairs that were found on Fred's sofa. In July of 1979, which was when Amanda was murdered, Fred and his wife Edith had owned a dog who frequently laid on the couch. The hairs were still there in 1986. That's seven years later, y'all. Edith had also let detectives know that the couple did own a white Dodge van in 1979, and the dog would also sit in the van. Police found the van through sales records and found that the carpet had not been replaced. They vacuumed the carpet and collected dog hairs, as well as taking a few samples of the carpet fibers itself. During the comparison, Dr. Porter found that 23 of the 66 dog hairs that they found in the van matched with the ones found on Amanda's body. Eight of the dog hairs found on the sofa also matched hairs found in the van, as well as the ones that were on Amanda's body. The carpet fibers that were also collected were a match. Fred was charged with the murder of Amanda Ray and pleaded guilty to nine counts of indecent liberties with minors. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison for the indecent liberties and got sentenced to death for the murder of Amanda. But y'all, the sentence was overturned because of faulty wording. When he went to trial again, another jury sentenced him to death in 1991. But Fred won a new hearing from the state Supreme Court. And during this final sentencing, the jury was deadlocked, 10 to 2 in favor of execution. But because the jury couldn't agree on a unanimous decision, the judge gave Fred life in prison. The issue with life in prison in regards to Fred's case is that he can apply for parole. And he has. Multiple times. Each of which has been denied. And now you might be asking yourself, did he ever get charged for Neely's murder? Well, if you remember that witness who came forward in 2004 with that information on Fred, how that occurred was the witness was actually reading a newspaper that was covering the stories about Amanda and Neely's murders. And while he was reading, he recognized Fred's picture. And that's when he contacted the detectives and told him the story about Fred approaching the two kids who were playing outside. Well, detectives took this information and attempted to reopen Neely's case and tie Fred to her murder. Unfortunately, to this day, they have not been able to tie him to her case. But I think, based on the evidence, there's an obvious connection between the murders of Amanda, Neely, and Travis. All small children that were last seen with Fred and were then found strangled and near a body of water. I don't think that's just a coincidence. And there is still a $5,000 reward available for anyone who has any information on Neely's case. And unfortunately, the case of 8-year-old Travis Shane King, along with the other murders that Fred is considered the prime suspect for, which include the murders of 15-year-old Kathy Lynn Beattie, 12-year-old Sheila Lyon, and her 10-year-old sister Catherine Lyon, still remain cold to this day. These three cases occurred outside of North Carolina, but if you guys want to learn more about them and want me to cover them, just let me know. Fred is still alive to this day, and his next parole hearing is July 2024, which is approaching in less than a year, you guys. Amanda's family has done a lot of work to keep her name alive. There's a website dedicated to Amanda, which is included in the show notes. 
They also asked for help in sending letters to the parole board to keep Fred from receiving parole. I will also keep you guys updated on Neely's case as well as Fred's parole sentencing. I think it's important, as always, that we never forget the names of those we have lost to violence. I think it's important that we also hold those accountable for taking their lives, especially those that took advantage of small children. So I hope that Amanda's family keeps fighting, and I hope that one day justice can be brought to Neely, Travis, Kathy, Sheila, and Catherine. And I just want to commend all the families who have lost their children to something as heinous and disgusting as this. I know this case was hard to listen to, so I just want to thank everybody for listening. And despite how hard it is to listen to, I think it's important that we never forget these stories, that we never forget their names and their lives. They deserve to be here. I am praying for all the families and I just want to say that I pray that Amanda Marie Ray, Neely Shane Smith, Travis Shane King, Kathy Lynn Beatty, Sheila Lyon, and Catherine Lyon are all resting in peace. And that concludes episode 16 of Queen City Homicides, you guys. I know it probably was a crazy episode to come back to, but... I also thought it was a really important one considering that, you know, Amanda's family is still fighting to hold him accountable and Neely's family is still fighting for answers. So is Travis's family, Kathy's family, Sheila's family, Catherine's family. You know, like these are children, small children, all under the age of 18 who deserve to be here, who deserve to live long lives. And I think that's important that we never forget their names, that we never forget what happened to them. And it's, um, it's sad. It's disgusting. It's unfortunate and it's hard to listen to, but we also have to remember and we also have to hold ourselves accountable to fight for them. So I think it was a good welcome back episode and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. You know, I don't really like saying enjoyed, but I hope you guys found it informative and I hope that I was able to, you know, bring some attention to these cases if you haven't heard them before. I know I hadn't before I started researching this case. And again, I just want to thank everybody for their patience. I really hope that I won't be gone as long as I was and I know I didn't really give any updates either so I apologize I was just super busy super tired but we're back and I'm so excited to be back um if you guys have any case recommendations please let me know um if you enjoy the podcast like share leave a review tell a friend I really appreciate everybody who listens to the podcast I appreciate everybody who reached out to me and was holding me accountable to get another episode out and I'm so happy to be back and I hope you guys have a great day this episode should be out later today because it is Wednesday but have a good day you guys be safe Bye!